0: Hey, uh, welcome everybody. Uh, Good morning, Christ City Church. Uh, Thank you for joining us this morning as we gather together in this virtual way to remember the promises of God and to celebrate God's love towards us. Um, My name is uh, Matthew Watson. Uh, I serve as one of the pastors here at Christ City Church, and I just want to extend a welcome to everybody, particularly those of you, if it's your first time joining us. Really glad that you're here. I pray that this morning, that that wherever it is that you are this morning, and however it is that you are tuning into this service this morning, um, I pray that you experience God's deep and abiding presence. I pray that uh, that though we're not all uh, in the same place physically, that we would all experience the joy that comes with dwelling together in the Lord despite our geographic distance. That that together, uh, that we would have a sense collectively and personally of the abiding nearness of God. The the, the abiding nearness of, of, uh, of the God of all love, the God of all joy, the God of all peace, of all goodness, of all faithfulness, of all gentleness. God's word reminds us in Deuteronomy that the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. That God, the the righteous one, the the ever-present one, the victorious one, the one who has no beginning and no end, that the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. Church, we're encouraged in Joshua to be strong and courageous. We are told to not be afraid and neither be discouraged. Why? Because the Lord your God is with you. Where is the Lord with you? Wherever you go. Not to just like some of the places and and not just part of the places, but all of the places that you go. And church, that doesn't only mean the places that you can go that's mapped out on like the Google Maps. Though God goes with you there too. But there's other places that God goes with you. God uh, is also uh, with you when you have to travel to the hard places. When you've got to travel to the dark places, the, the lonely places, the strange or awkward places. God's in that geography too. God's word tells us uh, that the Lord, our God, will be with us wherever we go. That's also the courageous places, the the, the prophetic places, the the, I-have-to-stand-here-because-God-said-so places. God says, God promises to be with us in those places too. And that's what he means when he says that he's with us wherever it is that that we go. He's with us in the waiting places, because sometimes the Lord says, wait, my child. God is with us there too. He, he's with us in the painful places, and he's with us in the places of our victory and in the places of our graduation. Amen, Andrea Ackerman. Yep. So, church, let me say to you as, as, as we begin, let me let me speak these words over you that David spoke over his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28 when he said, Be strong and courageous. Do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord, my God, somebody say, my God. my God. My God is with you. He will never fail you nor forsake you. So, so however it is that you're, that you're gathering with us this morning, I pray that you experience the presence of God in your midst, that you experience the power and truth that God is with you wherever you go. Amen? Amen. 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 That's just the sermon before uh, the sermon. Hey, listen, so for the past several weeks, we've been uh, exploring the theme of freedom as described in the New Testament book of Galatians. This is a, a book, a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. In Galatia, uh, Paul is, he's writing to a church that's become captivated by uh, the false belief that Jesus is insufficient, That Jesus, the the, the God incarnate, the one who came to seek and to save that which was lost, the Messiah, the the second person of the Trinity, the one who held all power and authority in his hands but surrendered it all in order to die on a cross and be raised to new life and offers that new life to all of us, that Jesus was insufficient. Insufficient for our salvation. And And it's against this that Paul is writing. The church in Galatia, they had come to believe that That Jesus also somehow needed our help in rescuing our souls. And that what Jesus needed was for us to also behave in a certain way. That our life in Christ required faith in Jesus and right living as defined by an ever-changing set of rules called the law. In his letter to the Galatians, what what Paul is attempting to correct is this belief by by re-articulating the truest gospel, the, the clearest good news that the way that we are saved, the way that our, that our lives begin the transformational work that the Spirit wants to do in us is by way of faith, faith alone in Christ alone, not a, not a faith in Christ plus something, even a good something, a faith in Christ, and that's it. Listen, this, this isn't a denial of the absolute truth that our faith in Christ ought to find outward expressions in certain ways, most notably, as Andrea pointed out last week, most notably, faith expressed in love of neighbor. As it says in Galatians 5 and 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. But, but those expressions of love towards others, they, they flow out of our faith in, in love for Jesus. Not in order that we might be loved by Jesus. We can't get it mixed up. Now, this morning, what I want to do is, is, is I want to walk us further into Paul's argument, where he begins to shift a bit more towards, towards the practical and towards the applicable. Up to this point, thing is, Paul has been. He's you know, he's been a bit salty towards the Galatians, and, and he's frustrated at their abandonment of sound doctrine. For the, for the first four chapters. Uh, Paul has laid out a number of theological arguments for faith alone. And now beginning in chapter 5 and following, he he turns from the theoretical and theological to the practical and the applicable. So uh, let's look uh, again at Galatians 5, 16, and 18. You can see it. The scripture will be on on the screen for you. Verse 16, it begins, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not be... Gratif- and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh they're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want but if you are led by the spirit you're not under the law over the previous chapters and for us the, the previous weeks we've we've discussed the case that paul is building He begins, he began by undermining the Galatian belief that in order to be in right standing with God, in order to gain embrace in God's family and God's kingdom, that one must follow the law, the Old Testament rules and regulations governing the people of Israel. Paul erodes that belief by pointing out that, first off, A, no one could actually do that, and B, Jesus is the only one who did, and C, Faith in Jesus is what matters, thereby freeing us from the obligations to follow the law for our salvation. This is why in in, in verse 18 of of chapter 5, he says, You are not under the law. We're no longer under the law because we are under Christ. We are are covered by Jesus. That's what it means to be under Christ. However, Paul also addresses the, the converse of this newfound freedom that faith deploys. He he addresses those who would use the freedom from the law that Jesus offers and then use it for selfishness or or self-indulgence, as we learned last week. This is why Paul, again, he says in 5.13, when he uh, is making his case, he says, you, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh or self-indulgence. The alternative that's being sort of put forward by Paul to the ancient church in Galatia and to the contemporary church in the district of Columbia is not life in the law and neither is it life in the flesh, but rather it's this third alternative. It's life in the spirit. Walk by the spirit, says in verse 16. You're led by the spirit in verse 18. What Paul's trying to highlight here is what Jesus so often explained in the gospels that life with Christ, it's not just like the opposite of something else. It's an altogether different thing. The the kingdom of God is this altogether different category. It's it's, it's just on its own. It isn't just a better version of a bad thing or a nicer variation of a broken experience. It has an altogether different kind. If if the law is like one side of the coin and self-indulgence is the other side, Paul is saying, no, it's neither of those. It's life in the Spirit of God. It's, it's the Spirit of God in you. That's where freedom is found. That's what you are to walk by. That's, that's, that's what you're led by. Church, I've got to say, if I sort of be frank for a minute, I, I think here's the rub for, for me, and, and I don't think I'm alone in this. I think it's for many of us. I fear that we continue to remain captivated by visions of God's kingdom that are simply better alternatives to what we know. We imagine life with God is just a really good version of the life that we have now. It's like our life without problems. And what if God is wanting to say to us, no, life with me is an altogether different category of living. It's not the other side of the same coin. It's a different type of currency altogether. What if the Spirit is trying to speak to us through our brother Paul in this letter, and he's saying your imaginations for your lives are way too small. It's too captivated by what you know. I pray that we experience a a, a truer freedom, a a, a freedom of our imaginations, and consider the beautiful and thrilling and exhilarating and fascinating, if not a bit nerve-wracking life that the Spirit is calling us into, a life that isn't defined just by the parameters of what the world denotes as good or blessed or hallowed, but rather is propelled by the power and fire of the one who made the cosmos, yet knows the number of hairs on our head the one that that moves mountains and tells the rivers which way to go. But hears your prayers in the quiet of the nighttime hours when you cry out to the Lord, Lord, here I am. Do you see me? God, I I pray that you capture our imaginations. Capture our imaginations for our lives so that we might walk by the Spirit and be led by your Spirit, that same Spirit that hovered over the deep and the dark at the creation of the world and now hovers over our lives, beckoning, beckoning us to come unto you and to walk in the ways of your life in us. Paul exhorts the church to, to walk by the Spirit to be led by the Spirit, for that is what it is to walk in freedom. Freedom is, is walking in a liberating step with the Spirit of God. Paul then turns towards describing what that will look like. He describes what life is like when we don't walk in the Spirit of freedom. And he describes what it does look like when we are led by the Spirit, what he calls the fruit of the Spirit those marks that will adorn the lives of those that are led by the Spirit of God. does this in a couple of ways. First, we see what Paul says in Galatians five, nineteen through 21. The acts of the flesh or the works of the flesh, they're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and alike. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is picking up a bit where he left off earlier in chapter 5 by highlighting that these are the characteristics of those that use their freedom from the law to become bound to a life of the flesh. And again, remember, whenever you hear flesh in Galatians, what, what you should hear is is self indulgence, not flesh like flesh and bones or bodies. In other words, what he's saying is that, is that the work of a life of self indulgence, of self desire, of self of appeasement, that such a life leads to the demonstration of any manner of self destructive outcomes. And he lists some of those. Listen, you can read there. Now, look, <clears throat> I can spend some time, you know talking about each of these in the list, talking about sexual immorality or idolatry or witchcraft or jealousy or rage or any of the others. And yeah, I mean, that can certainly, you know, be a conversation of merit. But, But I think that sometimes what can happen is we can focus on the list and try and figure out, like, okay, well, how am I doing with this list? Like, how am I doing with each of the specifics in this list and miss the overarching message here? We can see this list and we can think, well, you know... I mean, I haven't engaged in any witchcraft or orgies today, but, you know, dissension and factions, that's a little bit harder for me. And rage only shows up when I'm, like, scrolling social media, but that's not that bad. And when we do that, we miss, like, the larger point that Scripture is making. And that point is that a life lived for oneself, a life lived in pursuit for what's best for me and what's only good for me is a road towards heartbreak. And frankly, it's a road towards death rather than the Bible's better invitation to be led by the Spirit and a vision of God's kingdom in our midst. In the, in the message translation of the Bible, stark, painful nuance of this passage is captured. In the message, verses 19 through 21, they say this, it's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time repetitive loveless cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, The vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, I could go on. These are the works of the flesh. These are the marks of the kind of life that develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. This is what it looks like to be bound to the flesh rather than that of the spirit. This past week I had a a long-time friend, a dear friend of mine, um, lives in Tennessee, Valerie. She called me. Uh, Valerie works for one of the largest retailers in the U.S. Last year, they topped over $5 billion in sales. Valerie works in their community engagement and social responsibility department. As far as I know, she's the only full-time employee dedicated to that work. And she called me so that we could process the problem of, how do you get a multi-billion dollar for-profit company to care about the poor? How do you convince them that it's in their better interest to give their employees paid time uh, to volunteer in the community? How do you tell the financial officers that funds should be directed to the common good and it might seem counterintuitive, but truly it is in everyone's better interests to do that? The bottom line isn't just the bottom line. When we were talking, she was was really asking a version of, of... the question of how do you say to a system and to a people who are bent on living only for themselves that there is another way, that there is a better way to live? And in our conversation, while we were talking about corporate community responsibility, what we were really talking about was the warning and the invitation that is embedded in Galatians five nineteen through 21. Because if we're honest with ourselves, this is who we are, not just who they are, or, or we are so tempted to be putting ourselves and our exclusive interests above so many others. So often we're only willing to give out of our excess or from our places of convenience, but rarely giving out of sacrifice for the sake of a kingdom vision for our lives and the lives of others. Paul says if if, if we make putting ourselves first into a lifestyle and a way of living, if we consistently put our wants over the needs of others, then We close ourselves off from the kingdom of God. That's why it says in in verse 21, those who do such things, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I know that just even hearing that, it can be a bit unsettling. It It can sound like an unsettling conclusion to this section of the passage because it sounds like Paul is saying God is excluding somebody. The truth is, it's just merely a logical conclusion. The kingdom of God is where God reigns and it fits the location of uh, where that's characterized by God's character of, of love and joy and peace and all of the other things that we'll talk about in a moment. And the person who consistently lives for him or herself, who refuses to forgive or who clings to bitterness, they're choosing the opposite of life in the spirit. As one of my favorite preachers, Pastor Justin Fong says, if you draw a shape with three sides, You haven't drawn a circle, no matter how many times you try to do so. This is the logical conclusion. And if the life of faith is about life with God, about becoming more like God, then it makes sense that those who do these things, as enumerated in verses 19 through 20, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. They're choosing to say no to Jesus and to the life that Jesus extends to all of us. They're saying no to restored relationships with the God who made us. Paul finishes this section, though. He doesn't leave us there. He concludes it with a a comparison, and a comparison that he began in verse 16 and following. He turns his attention now to describing the life of the one that does walk by the Spirit and the one that is led by the Spirit. In verses 22 through 23, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. He's using contrasting language as he has throughout the letter. He's lining up on the one side the works of the flesh and on the other side the fruit of the Spirit. And we might immediately notice that Paul again is demonstrating the differences between flesh and Spirit. But he's also contrasting the way by which these characteristics find their demonstration. Here's what I mean. In in, in verse 16, he says that um, acts of the flesh are works of the flesh, hatred, discord, rage, sexual immorality, that those things are achieved by work, by acts. They are the things to which we have placed our hand on. We have brought them about. We act so as to see their display. Yet on the contrast, Paul notes that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and the like, well, those are fruit those are fruit of the spirit. He doesn't call them acts or works. They aren't things that we see produced by our own effort. They come about by a different process altogether. Paul here is using organic agricultural language and metaphors and this is in stark contrast to the disbelief of the Galatians that wanted to say that salvation was gained by faith plus our own works, our own effort. Paul is continuing his erosion of the belief by noting that the byproducts of faith, those, that, those, those byproducts, they don't come about by one's effort, but by the cultivation, the tender cultivation of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, I mean, you know, don't hear what I'm not saying now. This isn't to say that there isn't some effort or work or responsibility on our part to join with the Spirit in the cultivation of these things. But it is a recognition that ultimately... It is the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who leads as we walk with the Spirit. Now look, I grew up in a housing project in East Dallas. I'm not much of a farmer, but here's the thing. Lisa and I, we got a plot in the community garden behind our house, mostly just to meet our neighbors. But here, what I'm growing in my plot, I'm actually growing salsa. That's what I'm growing. I got some tomatoes, some cilantro. I got some uh, 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 garlic, got some jalapenos in there. I got some seeds, put them in the ground. I put the steak thing in there so the tomatoes can grow up, right? I water them regularly, kind of. I weed occasionally. Now, and I do all these things. I go and check them out. I go, I re-weed because, you know, I don't know, just weed, just stuff, not my jalapenos, other things come up. And I do all of those things. But the thing is, I'm powerless to see jalapenos come up out the ground. There's There's another thing that is at work. This is what Paul is saying, I, we can't just on our own cultivate love and joy and peace and patience, that ultimately it is the Spirit that causes these fruit to flourish in our lives. It is a dance that we dance with the Holy Spirit, and this is markedly different than the mechanistic engagement with the law that the Galatians were embracing that said, if I deploy this input, my self-righteousness, then it will produce this output, God's blessing. That isn't how God works. God isn't a genie. He's not like a blessing ATM asking for our divine pin number. God works by way of relationship, by way of partnership with humanity to see the beauty displayed in the dance of faith that we dance with God. The other contrast that, that Paul makes is the recognition that the fruit of the spirit are traits that are best displayed in the relationship with others. In the context of a community, you don't become more loving on your own. But rather, it's best displayed in how you put others before yourself. Joy by myself, I mean, it can sort of be a thing of beauty, but if it only dwells with me alone, well, then you'd be right to question the strength of my life's joy. Patience isn't really patience until it's tested with relationships. Relationships with those I love. And peace isn't peace until it's displayed in the presence of those that I might consider enemies. Fruit of the Spirit is a contrast to the works of the flesh and how they are produced by my own hands or by the guidance of the Holy Spirit and where they are produced on my own, by my own self-indulgent self versus in the context of others surrounded by a beautiful yet broken community of fellow image bearers of God. To to land this, I want to conclude with the way that Paul begins this section. With an invitation. Paul says in Galatians 5.13, he says, you were called to be free. Then he continues in verse 16 by inviting us to walk in the Spirit. He follows up in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Paul is inviting the Galatians and us to lay down our yokes, to remember our freedom and to walk in it, to follow the wild spirit of God who leads us in fields of kingdom adventure, to lay aside the enslaving chains of self-gratification and see that the shackles have been broken by the spirit of freedom. We're no longer bound to the law of self-indulgence nor self-righteousness. Rather, we are freed to live as those growing in love, Growing in joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control and gentleness. And I know there's gonna be some of us that say, look, this that that just isn't me. Or doesn't describe me now. And I want to say that's true. And that's okay. Acknowledging that's a good first step. It's actually the necessary step. But remember that God is a God of embrace, He's a God of welcome. And part of what it is to be welcomed is to understand that the welcome is unconditional. God doesn't ask us to display the fruit of the Spirit first. That's the whole point. God knows where we are. And He knows who we are. And He gently guides us to the life that is truly life by the tender care of the Spirit. Let us all either begin this journey today or continue this journey by faith alone in Christ alone.